The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. The little but larger than life book, the book of James. Today we start a standalone mini three-part series in the book of James that we're calling Wise up. That's the title, Wise Up. And this morning we need to wise up concerning a deadly enemy that wants to ruin our lives by corrupting our desires. What is this enemy? What is this daily deadly enemy? It's the enemy of temptation. Temptation. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to jump in. James chapter 1. We're going to jump in at verse 13, read down to verse 18. This is Probably the, the, the most insightful passage concerning this deadly enemy temptation in the New Testament. So this is what we read, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Father God, bless your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most insightful, helpful things I've ever read on the subject and theme of temptation is by Martin Luther, the 16th century Christian reformer. Likening temptation to birds, he said this classic quote. He said, you cannot stop the birds, referring to temptation, from flying over your head, but you can prevent the birds from making a nest or building a nest in your hair. That is, according to Luther's analogy here, his bird nest analogy, temptation for the Christian cannot be completely escaped. You, you can't escape from it. It's just like birds. You can't stop them from flying over your, your head. Okay, you can shoot a few out of the sky, but you can't keep all of them from flying over your head. But equally, the other truth, the most hopeful truth, is that you can overcome, increasingly overcome temptation in your life. And I think this is what James wants us to learn this morning. He wants us to successfully wage war against temptation in our lives. But here's the thing. You can't win a battle or a war against an enemy you don't understand. And so he wants us to understand temptation this morning. And so he's going to help us by highlighting these, these three headings, all concerned and connected to temptation. Number one, the origin of temptation. Number two, the stages of temptation. Number three, a strategy to overcome temptation. So this is where we're heading, origin, stages, and a strategy to wage war successfully against our many temptations. So the origin of temptation. The question is, where do our temptations come from? Where do they originate from? Well, straight out of the gate, James tells us categorically, not from God. Listen to what he says, verse 13. He says, when tempted, just note that, not 
if you are tempted, but when tempted, this is where Luther gets his analogy from, you can't stop the birds from flowing over your head. When tempted, it's going to happen, no one should say what? God is tempting me. God is tempting me. We're going to see next week that God does allow and sometimes bring uh, trials into our lives to shape us and make us more like Christ. But when we are tempted in the midst of our trials, those temptations are not from God, according uh, to James. And, and the reason is because what he goes on to tell us in verse 13, he says, For, for God cannot tempt, be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Do, do you follow his logic? He's saying, look, since God is incapable of sin, that means he cannot be enticed by sin. And since he cannot be enticed by sin, he cannot tempt you to sin. That, that would just be to contradict his character, and that can't happen because he's the holy, holy, holy one. And so he's not the author of temptation, so we need to point the finger somewhere else. When we find ourselves being tempted, those temptations are not from him. He's not the author of temptations. In fact, James stresses in verses 16 and 17 that God is the author of good things. He says, don't be deceived, verse 16, brothers and sisters, that is, don't think that these bad things, temptation, uh, come from him, but good things, good, perfect gifts flow from him, we're told in verse 17. And so we need to go back to the original question, so then where do our temptations come from? Where do, where do they originate from? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking this morning, uh, the devil. All right, who's with me? All right, yeah, it, well, you're right. The, the, the devil is called the tempter. Many times in the Bible, in, in Genesis chapter 3, he's called the tempter. Matthew chapter 4, he's called the tempter. First Thessalonians chapter 3, he's called the tempter. But I want you to notice what James tells us here in verse 14. Make it personal. He says, but each person, put your name there, is tempted when they, when they, so it's you, me, we, they are dragged away by their own my own, your own, evil desire and enticed. Where do our temptations come from? Our evil desires. Those parts of us that have yet to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Our evil desires. And so look, listen, the reason why he says that these temptations flow out of our heart, our evil hearts, these desires, is not to suggest for a moment, that the enemy is not somehow involved in our temptations. He, he is. In fact, later on in James 4, 7, he tells us to resist the devil. That is, resist him as the what? The, the tempter. No, the reason why he's saying, look, you're responsible here, in part, is because he wants to remove the temptation of blaming the tempter for our temptations. He wants us to fess up, in other words, as being equal shareholders in our own temptations. And so that, that kind of takes us to our second consideration then. Well, how are we actually tempted? What's, what's the process? How, how, uh, what are the stages of temptation in our hearts? And, and James here, he, he documents, he charts for us the poisonous, toxic development of temptation in our hearts by highlighting the three stages of temptation. You ready for these? Here's the first stage of temptation. Seduction. Verse 14, he says, Again, put your name there. He says, Lewis is tempted when he is dragged away by his own evil desire and, what's the word? That's seduction. Seduce. In fact, it's really interesting that James, he was a fisherman by trade originally. 
he is using a fishing illustration, a fishing analogy here. Because he's saying you're dragged away and enticed. It's like a little fishy swimming along, minding its own business. And then out of the corner of its eye, it notices something. What's that something? Bait. Bait. Although the fish doesn't realize it's bait, can't see the hook. All it sees is this juicy worm. And at that moment, the fish goes, enticed. Now, fish don't do that, of course, but we do. We do, right? Because of these desires, we see something or we want something. We decide and we go, and at that moment, we are what? We're seduced by that thing, that thing that's trying to reel us in, kind of cause us to to, to bite down on it. And, And this is where temptation begins. It begins with your, listen, your desire life. That's where temptations begin, your desire life. We often think about the thought life. But we also need to think as Christians about the desire life. It's something that you desire more than God. And that thing pulls you in. It entices you. Now, here's the good news. At this stage, you haven't sinned yet. All right? This seduction stage is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation, is, temptation only becomes sin when you actually give in to it. Okay? When you start to swim towards the worm, that becomes sin. We're going to look at that. But at this stage, you haven't sinned yet. And so at this moment, you have a real opportunity. We have an opportunity when we're in that decision mode. We're being enticed to actually overcome the temptation by trusting in God, by looking at him, which we're going to see later on in the sermon. So this is the first stage, seduction. Second stage, it's on your screen, conception. Listen to what he says in verse 15. He says, we're enticed, then, our oh, second step, then, after desire, evil desire has what? Conceived, conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, at this stage, the stage of conception, the initial desire for whatever you're being enticed by is now deeply lodged in your heart And we know it's so hard at this stage for the thing to be dislodged. Because at this conception stage, the thing that you want, the thing that you're desiring, has become more important to you than your relationship with God. Who knows what I'm talking about? And and so it could be something, for example, that you really want to buy. You probably don't have the money for it. It's not good stewardship. But you've decided you want it. You must get it. That new vehicle, that new piece of clothing, that new game that new whatever. And so at this conception stage of temptation, you, you start to plan on how to get that thing. You're not thinking about God. You're like, I need it. And so maybe you start driving towards Westfields or, or you're doing online shopping and you know it's wrong, but hey, it's been conceived already. Or maybe, different example, maybe you, you've convinced yourself that you need to have this particular relationship in order to be happy. You, you know it's not going to be healthy for you. You know it's going to be an ungodly uh, unwise relationship, but you've convinced yourself that you need it. And so at this conception stage of temptation, you start dreaming on how to bring about this relationship. Who's with me? We, we, yeah, we're all on the same page. Like this conception stage. Again, listen, church, at this particular moment, this conception stage, you haven't actually sinned in a behavioral sense. But because of this, dis, this lodged desire, you've sinned at this desire level. Uh, this is what Jesus talks about in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've what? Committed adultery with her in your heart. 
you were enticed, and now you've conceived of it, and that sin within, even though you haven't actually behaved in a sinful manner. Yeah, and so that's the, this is the second stage, conception. Now the last stage, last phase, and this is, this is tragic. And the term is parturition. So it's seduction, conception, parturition. Some of you are like, what the heck does that mean? Well, if you've ever been through med school, I haven't, but I've just read a bit. Um, it means the, the act of birth. The, the process of delivery. And so notice what, what James tells us here in verse 15. He says, Then, after desire has conceived it, parturition, it, it gives birth to sin. So back to our fish analogy. All right, so there's the fish. It's going, it starts to swim towards the bait. Right, it's conceived. I'm going to eat the worm. And then it bites down on that worm. And initially, oh, he's in heaven. Initially, that, that, worm, that fish is like, oh, man, this worm is so tasty. It's delicious. And then all of a sudden, the hook's in. There's sin. And you see, this is why sin is so powerful is because it promises pleasure. If sin didn't promise pleasure, we wouldn't sin. We wouldn't be enticed. But it holds out a little worm, whatever that thing is. If you have me, you're going to... Have joy. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to feel more content. And we're like, yeah, okay. And then you, 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 you bite on it. You take it. You think it. You say it. You do it. You purchase it, whatever. And then, you, and then on the other side of it, you feel what? You feel really bad. You feel guilty. You feel empty. You know, the hook's in your mouth. And you're like, oh, I've done it again. And listen to his language. He says, you're dragged away. And when you actually sin at that moment, you're not experiencing the love of Christ. You're not keeping yourself in the love of Christ, as Jude says. And so you feel distant from him, and that makes you feel empty and frustrated and dissatisfied. That's the, the bitter fruit of giving in to temptation. It gives birth to sin, and then his language is when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. What a terrible thought. The image, giving birth to death, that aroma of death in your heart after you've sinned. And so, look, listen, the hope is at this stage, as, the, as a Christian, we're not out for the count. I mean, how many times I've been seduced, enticed, I've conceived of it, I've actually done it, I've parturitioned it, I've given birth to sin, and yet, thanks be to God, I'm, I'm still here all right, because of his grace, still fighting. And so this is where we need to, I guess, take the sermon now, is thinking about how, okay, this is, these are the stages of temptation, seduction, conception, and what that word is. And, and we need to think about how to overcome temptation in our lives. Is that good? We need to learn how to more wisely wage war against temptation, these, these birds that fly over our heads. And so for the rest of the sermon, we're going to think about this three-part strategy. And I trust this is going to be really, really helpful. All right, the first part is this. It has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus is teaching, Jesus is modeling, and Jesus is saving. You get that? Jesus is teaching, Jesus is modeling, Jesus is saving. Jesus is teaching. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin. He's talking about temptation, talking about desires that lead to sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, Metaphorically speaking, just throw that in there just in case you start doing it. It says, gouge out your eye and throw it away. In other words, take drastic measures against these evil desires that lead to sin. 
He goes on and says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, you cut it off. In other words, we're to deal with temptation the way that Aaron Ralston dealt with his dire situation. Now, some of you are like, who the heck is Aaron Ralston? How many of you have seen the movie 127 Hours? Hands up. All right, some of you. Aaron, you, did, have you, you're lying to me. Aren't you? Oh, yeah, you're telling me the truth. Right. Aaron Ralston, true story, American hiker, and he was in the southern, southern parts of Utah. He was in a canyon, and uh, he jumped off this boulder, and this huge boulder fell on him and trapped his arm beneath it. And he was there for 27 hours. And he realized that no one was going to rescue him. So you know what he did? He took out his pen knife and he cut off his own arm. That was the only option he had. Drastic measure, right? A drastic dire situation calls for drastic measures. He had to cut. Well, Jesus wants us to deal with temptation this way. In other words, he doesn't want us to flirt with it. He wants us to slam the door uh, into the face of, of temptation, not to give into it in any way. And so how do we do that? How do we take drastic measures against temptation? How do we metaphorically take out the eye and cut off the, the hand? Well, two things I want to highlight here. Number one, I trust these will be helpful. Number one, be more aware of where your particular temptations lurk because we all have them. We all have Achilles' heel, right? Where do your temptations lurk? Just a few things. Maybe in a certain place. You know, when you go there, you're enticed, you're seduced, a certain place. It, it might not be a literal place. It might be cyberspace, a cyber place. Like, for example, I just want to be transparent with you today. I was on Facebook the other day, and most of you would know that I'm pretty clumsy when it comes to Facebook and all things you know, technological. Um, just ask Crystal, pretty bad. And I was scrolling Facebook innocently, just like that fish swimming along, minding my own business, going, okay, I'm not really on this much, but, you know, I, I want to get with it. And so I'm just scrolling Facebook, and up came a worm. <laughs> that is, this woman, who was just kind of not really dressed, and she was doing this funny dance. And I was just like, what? this is Facebook? And I'm like, and I was, I was looking at the worm. I was tempted. I was enticed. I was like, what do I, what do I do? And I just scrolled through it and turned it off. If, if you're tempted, not only lustfully, by, by being on social media, then maybe remove yourself from it. If you're tempted to compare yourself to others all the time because of Facebook, then maybe remove yourself from it. Or if you're, if you're tempted to pretend that you have the perfect life, it's a form of lying. You, know, you take the kids out and they're just horrors all day. And yet for Facebook, you say, just smile for the camera. And you put it on Facebook, like, hey, we've got the happy family. You know, we've got it happening in our home. It's like, they were like demons all the way through the day. And now look, on Facebook, wow, the barons, they're having an awesome day. That's lying. That's lying. If, you, if you're tempted, then remove yourself. Jesus said, pluck it out, cut it off. It might be around certain people that you're tempted. You know how this works, you know, at lunchtime, maybe at uni or workplace, you know where those people gather just to gossip, talk about the boss or him or her. If, if you're tempted to be a part of that, because the Bible says that the gossip is kind of juicy, makes you feel a bit better, you know, especially if you want to say something against someone, you can gossip about them, remove yourself from that tempting situation. Or it might be, 
a time in your day, maybe at night time when you're tired or something, you can be irritable, you can give into temptation or lust, whatever it may be. Know yourself, in other words. Know where your particular temptations lurk. That's the first way to be drastic, take drastic measures against temptation. Number two, bring your temptations and even your actual sins into the light of Christian accountability. You hear that? Bring it into the light. James says in 5.16, confess your sins to each other. Also, confess your struggles. I'm, I'm struggling with this temptation. I'm being tempted and enticed to do this and that. And it's a constant thing. Bring that into the light of Christian accountability. This is what um, Timothy Lane says. He's written a little book. I encourage you to grab it. It's 32 pages long. It's really small. It's called Fighting the Urge. And this is what he says, William Lane. Next slide. There it is. He says this, talking about accountability. Sin grows most freely and swiftly in secret. So keeping your temptations and sins hidden is, a, is very dangerous. He says your willingness to tell others about your struggle shows how serious you are about changing. But, in brackets, and your unwillingness to talk to others is an indication that you aren't as serious about changing as you might think. And so if it's just you want to hold it to yourself, keep it secret, then maybe you're not serious really about changing. Because we change when we expose things, when we allow others into our lives, when we're honest and transparent and open with others. And they can lovingly help you and speak the truth in love. And so find someone. That's the point. Find another brother, sister that you trust that you can actually be accountable with. Yeah? that you can share your struggles with because this is how, one way, we can take drastic measures against our desires that sometimes lead to sin. Is that good? So those two things. So that's Jesus' teaching. Number two, how I'm going for time. Okay, not bad. Jesus' modeling. Jesus' teaching, Jesus' modeling. In Matthew's gospel, again, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus models for us how to successfully wage war against temptation. Because three times in the wilderness, he was tempted. And each time, how did he overcome? With the Word. He was saturated with the Word. You cut Jesus, he bled Bible. And he, he overcame. He, it is written, devil said, if you are the son of God. And Jesus was like, what do you mean this? If business. I know who I am. It is written. It is written. It is written. He overcame because he was full with the Word of God. It, it was just brimming out of him. And, and so he didn't succumb to the seduction and the lies of the enemy because he knew his true identity. It wasn't if you're the son of God. He knew his true identity as the son of God. And also he knew his mission. His mission was not to bow the knee to the enemy and have the kingdoms that way. That was one of the temptations, wasn't it? You bow to me and all the kingdoms are yours. And Jesus, that's not the, the path for me. I'm going the way of the cross to save people. Oh, yeah, I'll have the kingdoms, but I'll be the savior. I'll be the rescuer. I'll be the deliverer. And so he didn't succumb because he was full of the word of God. Church, this is why we need to be a people of the book. This is why we need to be in the book, to know what's written so that we know our true identity in Jesus, that that is more satisfying than all these other things that we're being tempted by. We are to know the will of God and the plan of God. But listen, we won't be able to, like Jesus, say, no, Satan, it is written, it is written. Or even to our own hearts, preach against your own feelings and say, it is written. You can't say that unless you're reading what's written. You've got to read what's written before you can say, it is written. 
If you're not reading what's written, you won't say that. And you will succumb to temptation. You will. Because it's impossible not to. Because we follow Jesus' lead, his example. We overcome by being full of the word of God. And so Jesus is modeling. Lastly, this is the most important thing. So if you've fallen asleep, wake up now. Because this is the most important thing about successfully waging war against temptation. It's Jesus' saving. So he's teaching, he's modeling, he's saving. Now I've got my notes here. And the reason why I have my notes is because I want to get this right. I don't want to screw this bit up because this is really, really important, this part. Jesus, the, 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 way, look, look, the way we successfully fight against temptation begins by identifying what's happening in our hearts every time we give in to temptation. And, and what is happening at a heart level? What's happening in our hearts every time we choose the bait? One word. Are you ready? Worship. Worship. That is, we are desiring at that moment something other than Jesus. It's worship. Again, Timothy Lane, he says this, very insightful. He says, You don't behave your way into sinful responses. So you can't behave your way out of sinful responses. That is, this is not about behavior modification. I think most sermons are just about modify your behavior, modify behavior. It won't work because the issue goes a lot deeper than behavior. It's heart. It's worship. It's what we desire. Listen to what he says. He says, you worship your way into sinful responses. You desire something more than Jesus. That's worship. You think that that thing is going to bring you life. That's a pseudo savior. That's worship. Now listen to what he says. You must Worship your way out of sinful responses. You must worship your way out of temptation, in other words. And so here's the principle. What you worship changes your behavior. You hear that? What you worship shapes your behavior, and it also changes your behavior. For example, (laughs) picture this. This is going to be easy to picture. Imagine this. All right, Picture this. You're in a full-blown argument. Maybe with your spouse, as I told you, it would be easy to picture. Or your neighbor, maybe you do want to have that argument with your neighbor because they're irritable, irritating. Or or maybe your kids or something. You're having a full-blown argument, okay? It's ugly. It's an ugly scene. There's red faces everywhere, right? You're, you're You're arguing. You're stomping your feet. You're shouting. There's a lot of sarcasm. By the way, that's how I argue with a lot of sarcasm. Just ask Nat. Gets right up her nose. And it's kind of nice at the time, but it's... It always ends badly for me. It just does. Because her method is not sarcasm. I'm not going to go away. You know, I'm just going to mention it. <laughs> That's why I wear sunny sometimes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so you're having this argument. And it's, it's, it's just a beefy argument. And all of a sudden, as you're going for it, your phone rings. Your phone rings. And immediately, something happens to your behavior. What happens? It miraculously changes. All right, and you pick up the phone and you don't say, what the heck, I'm in an argument. Can you call back? No, what, what happens? You say, hello. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, you've just gone from thunder and lightning. Like you're just freaking out, turning into some kind of monster to this beautiful summer's day. It's like, hello. It's like, what just happened to your behavior? What, what just changed? Was it the person on the other end of the line that changed you? No. No, what changed? 
It was a change of heart. All right, follow me. A change in what you wanted and desired most. So back to it. You were arguing. Why? Why were you arguing? Because something had gotten in the way of what you really wanted. Perhaps you wanted someone to treat you a certain way. Perhaps you wanted that person just to leave you alone. Perhaps you wanted them to act a certain way, okay? But, but with the ringing of the phone, what you want changes. Now what you want is for someone to think well of you. There's a change. And so your object of desire, that's worship, has changed from winning an argument to your reputation. And that changes your behavior. Now what has this got to do with temptation? What has this got to do with temptation? Everything. Everything. Why? Because, listen, the way to overcome these evil, sinful desires, false worship that gives in to temptation is by how? By desiring something more attractive and appealing and wonderful at that moment of temptation. And there's nothing more wonderful and worship-inspiring than Jesus' love, his saving love that on the cross, listen, He resisted temptation. He overcame temptation in order to rescue you, to save you. Do you realize that? That he was tempted on the cross? Like We know he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that because he said, Father, not my will. Every part in his humanity screamed to run away. He knew what the cross meant. It meant God forsaken us. And for the first time in all eternity, he was going to be away from his father. And that crushed his heart. He knew the, 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 the terrible consequence of the cross. And so he said, Father, not my will, but your will. He was tempted and he bled great drops of blood because of the, passion, the power of that temptation in his heart. But on the cross, he was also tempted. He was also tempted. Mark, in his gospel, he tells us that on three occasions whilst Jesus was on the cross, he was tempted to come down from the cross. The, 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 those who passed by, they walked by and they started to snigger and mock. And they said, look, look, this self-proclaimed prophet, the so-called Messiah, he saved others. He rescued others, but look at him. Look at him, he can't even rescue himself. And, and then the religious leaders, the religious establishment, they started to mock him by saying, oh, look, <laughs> he saved others. But look at him, king of the Jews, spit, hiss. If you are the king of the Jews, then how about you come down off that cross, all right? If you, so, you know, if you think you're the Messiah, come down. He would, he, was, he would have been tempted there. And then one of the crims started to say similar things. Oh, save us, save us, come off the cross. I really believe that Jesus, with every human fiber of his being, would have been tempted at that point. Tempted to call 10,000 legions of angels to rescue him and to show those lowlifes who was really in charge, that he really was the Son of God, the Messiah. But guess what he did? He didn't do that. Not a word came out of his mouth. Not a word of revenge. Not a word of, hey, I'm going to show my great power here. Now, what, what, what do we hear him say from the cross? In the Greek, it's in the continual tense. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Not just once, but Father, forgive them. They were mocking him. Come down from the cross. He was like, Father, forgive them. Come down from the cross. Father, forgive Come down from the cross. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And why was he doing that? Why did he choose to resist the temptation and bleed for you? He's going to make it personal, church. He did that for you. 
He remained on the cross for you, that cruel cross for you because of all your evil desires that given to sin. He was taking that sin, the punishment of your sin, of giving in to those many temptations upon himself so that you wouldn't be crushed. That's what he was doing for you. And there's no more beautiful, more attractive thing than that, this Savior dying for you. And so no wonder we can sing what the Psalm 63 says, oh, your love is better than life. When you know that in a heart level, you know what Jesus did for you deep down within, you can say that with full conviction. Your love is better than life and everything in life, a world full of temptation, your love is better than life. And so that when temptation comes knocking on the door of your heart, you'll be able to say with Joseph, even more than Joseph, Joseph Potiphar's wife, you know the story? Your heart, I'm hot, let's get it on. And what did he say? Is no way. How can I sin against my God? And so we're to say that as well when temptation comes our way. We're to say, how can I sin against the Son of God, my Savior, who bled and gave himself for me? And so this is how we overcome temptation. We worship our way out of temptation by desiring him more. This is the only way, I think, to successfully wage war against temptation. Yes, we're to follow Jesus' teaching, but what is to fuel obedience? It's this knowing him as saviour. Yes, it's following his model. Yes, but what fuels that? What is this? Knowing him as the redeemer, as your liberator, as your saviour king. Yeah? So how about we, we, we stand? And I, I want us just to reflect on his goodness. He did that for you. Yes, he did it for us, but make it personal. He did it for you. He did it for you. And there's nothing more worship-inspiring than that. This is the desire, this worship that conquers all these evil desires, this false worship of giving your heart to other things that never satisfy, they never deliver. But Jesus does, he satisfies. So just spend a moment. Reflecting on him. Thank you, Lord. Maybe just where you are, just, just, just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you these pseudo-saviors that you're chasing. And, and the wonderful thing is that when the Spirit does that, it's, it's never to make us feel guilty and rotten and empty. No doubt you already feel that way if you're chasing off those things. But he wants us to realize and to turn and to look ahead to a more wonderful, brighter future. And that is of knowing Jesus deep within and being completely content in him and everything that he is for us and all that he's promised us. Holy Spirit.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I just encourage you just to talk to him. Just to pray. You know where your temptations lurk. Maybe you know what to do now and how to respond. And so I just pray, Father, thank you, Lord God, for your word and how it is insightful and we would be so lost, lost in our temptations, our desires without your truth. And thank you, Lord God, for it. And I pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, enable us to so love the Savior that we would fall out of love with these other things that are inferior and draining. Lord, I pray, Father, would you just bless us, all your people, Lord God, as we go out, you know, as we enjoy morning tea, I just pray, Father, that, that you would encourage us and, and help us, Lord God, stay in this atmosphere of worship as we encourage one another. And Lord, help us, Lord God, be real with each other too, not hide, that's dangerous, but to start opening our hearts to those we trust, Father, so that we can overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, church. If you would like prayer,